It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Liz Truss struggled to defend her government's economic strategy this week, as the Prime Minister said her dash for growth might still pay off. It's not fair to have a recession. It's not fair to have a town where you're not getting the investment. It's not fair if we don't get high-paying jobs in the future because we've got the highest tax burden in 70 years. That's what's not fair. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be looking into the unfurling economic chaos in Westminster as the pound crashed to its lowest ever levels and Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng struggled to calm the markets. Our experts will look back on all the chaos and try to fathom where the situation goes next. Political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles will make sense of it all. And later, we'll be looking back on Labour Party conferences and whether Sir Keir Starmer's party is preparing to return to power. With the government in crisis, was the opposition leader able to capitalise on it in Liverpool? Our chief political correspondent Jim Picard and our northern correspondent Jennifer Williams will take us into the corridors of the Convention Centre. Thank you all for joining. Last Friday, Quasi Quartang delivered a so-called mini-budget that was not so many and so far not so successful. The biggest package of tax cuts in 50 years was meant to stimulate growth. Instead, it spooked the markets and has crashed the pound. The government has not U-turned and has not handled the communications of this crisis particularly well. After several days of ducking strategy, Mr Quartang told the BBC there was no alternative to what he was trying to do. If you look at the government's plan... We've got the growth plan, we've got the energy intervention that's saving thousands of pounds a year, we're putting more people's income into their own pockets through tax cuts, and we're very, very focused on making sure that the cost of living pressures can be withstood. George Parker, welcome back to the pod. Can you recall a more disastrous budget or fiscal event in modern British history? No, I, I can't. I mean, I think you have to go back to the Tony Barber budget in 72, wasn't 72 it? 72 is the really bad one. But remember the Omni Shambles budget a decade ago, 2012? That was about pasties. That was a caravan taxes. So I think in macro terms, Seb, I think we can put this one down as a real stinker in terms of the market reaction presented last Friday. And since then, we've had a whole series of terrible events as far as the government's concerned, including the Market for Volatility, of course, the IMF coming in. We can talk about all that, that in a minute. Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary, saying that Britain's turning from an emerging to a submerging economy. So it's gone down extremely badly. The communications, as you say, have been terrible. And we ended up on Thursday with an opinion poll by YouGov showing the Tories with a 33-point deficit behind the Labour opposition. It's been a terrible week for the government. 
And we should say that opinion poll reflects several others that came out this week as well, with, I think, Delta poll putting the Tories 21 points behind uh, and Redfield and Wilton putting the Tories 19 points behind. And if that was replicated to a general election, I believe the YouGov poll mean there would be a majority of 300 of the Labour Party. <laughs> so it might slightly be over-egging the actual situation, but it does express just how dire things are. Chris Giles, thank you very much for finding the time to join us this week. Why do you think it went so badly wrong? Because many of the measures were already out there from Liz Truss's leadership campaign. You know, reducing national insurance, not raising corporation tax, that was already agreed. The only two extra measures were cutting the 45p rate of tax and bringing the income tax cut forward from 2024 to 2023. And the sums of money there are billions. They're big sums, but they're not massive. So why did everyone take fright? I think there's a couple of things. One was that before the mini-budget, lots of people actually thought that although Liz Truss was clearly going to do the corporate tax and national insurance changes, there would be something out of the hat that sort of balanced things a little bit. Maybe some tax rises elsewhere, stealth ones, or some other stealthy spending cuts to balance the books a little bit. They also thought there might be some statements about how the government was going to show that its public finances were under control. And they certainly didn't think the Chancellor would then go on the TV saying that he was going to cut more tax just at the moment where we've got high inflation in the UK, 50-year low of unemployment, so this is going to push up interest rates. It was just the whole package together which made it seem as if the government just simply didn't care about Britain's public finances. Just it was irrelevant to them, and that's why the markets behaved as they did. And I agree entirely with what Chris just said, and it's, it was this sort of the view in the markets that the government was taking sort of almost a devil-may-care approach to the public finances. And Mark Carney made this point, the former governor of the Bank of England as well, Mel Stride, the Treasury Select Committee, that, that they'd given the impression that the institutions in the British economy, which are there to prevent politicians doing stupid things or reckless things, had been systematically chipped away at by the government in the run-up to the fiscal event. So the fact that Liz Trust was criticising the Bank of England during the course of the Tory leadership contest, saying that the mandate might have to be reviewed... The fact, as Chris was saying, that the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, was sidelined on the day of the event. So there was no forecast of where the debt was going, where the British economy was going. And of course, you know, quite an important thing, the sacking of the Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, Sir Tom Scholar, on Kwasi Kwarteng's first day as Chancellor. Tom Scholar embodied Treasury orthodoxy that Liz Truss decries, but the Treasury orthodoxy of sound money. And getting rid of him sent a clear message to the markets. Now, let's play through this almost day by day because it's been really quite the week of, of dramatic events. So, Chris, you mentioned that where things really got spooked was actually last Sunday where Kwasi Kwarteng was on the BBC's Laura Koonsberg show and was being interviewed about the budget. Now, on Friday, the pound hit its lowest level since 1985 when Kwasi Kwarteng was actually having a nice pint in the pub celebrating this big package of tax cuts that was delivered. But that message that there could be more to come really seemed to spook things. And when the pound trading started in Asia on Sunday night, it starts to get very bad. And overnight, it hit the lowest levels ever. But then on Monday, the Treasury and the Bank of England intervened, which again felt quite unprecedented. What was the thinking behind that? And what was the significance? Overnight, the pound was in free fall over Sunday night to Monday, going to the lowest ever, 1.035, compared with at the end of the war, $4.80. You know, we've had quite a lot of devaluations uh, over those last 80 years or so. But the thinking was that things were not calming down in the markets. Even though the pound rose a bit on Monday, things were not calm. 
the government bond market, or how much it costs the government to borrow. That was looking really ugly on Monday. The Bank of England went to ground, went silent. You couldn't get hold of them all through Monday. And you sort of began to realise that, that something was up. So they, they were trying to negotiate something. And what they did was they negotiated two statements. One first from the Treasury, which said, OK, come November, we will show how this all adds up. And then one from the Bank of England after that saying, thank you very much for that. Almost certainly this is going to mean higher interest rates. We won't tell you how much now, but in November, prepare for it. And at that point, Kwasi Kwarteng, who had not been seen in public, was actually spotted walking down the street outside the Treasury. And normally, during a fiscal crisis, I talked to one former Treasury aide who said that chances would be bundled into a car for walking five minutes down the road. So because, of course, every single thing you say can affect the markets. This is what Kwasi Kwarteng did not have to say. Chancellor, what are you going to do about the turmoil on the markets this morning, sir? I'm not going to make any comment now. Thank you. Well, what about the city? What, what conversation are you having with the Bank of England, sir? Do you have anything to say about what's going on, sir? Are you planning to reverse the announcement you made last Friday, sir? What do you have to say about everything that's been going on, sir? Just came to my office now. Thanks. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence, does it, George? No, silence has been a bit of a theme of this week, hasn't it? As we said, you heard quasi quasi. I mean, one of the reasons he didn't want to say anything, by the way, on the Monday was he was having a very difficult conversation with Liz Truss in Downing Street about whether the government and the Bank of England should say anything at all to steady the markets. Liz Truss's view, according to people we've spoken to, was that they should say nothing. That This was just a market squall that would pass by. The government policy was correct. Markets do what they do. But Kwasi Kwarteng and the Bank of England took the view that something had to be said. And that was a clear admission by Kwasi Kwarteng that he messed up by not promising a fiscal plan on the previous Friday. In fact, when I saw Kwasi Kwarteng at a, a modular housing factory in Kent a couple of hours after he delivered that statement last Friday, he said that the fiscal plan would be delivered in the new year. So they've already had to bring that forward to November and some people speculate it might have come forward beyond that. But yes, I mean, there was there was silence and this trust went to ground as well. And for a while, there just seemed to be a complete vacuum at the heart of economic policymaking. And that vacuum, Chris, was filled by a statement from the IMF, which where they came out and essentially expressed their grave concerns about both the economic statement and the market situation within the UK. And I don't want to use the word unprecedented too many times, but it was a very unusual thing for them to come out to say and do that. And the result has been the IMF has now been attacked by many supporters of this policy. Um, Lord David Frost, the art exiteer and big supporter of Liz Truss, has grouped it in with the Financial Times. The Economist and various leftist organisations, apparently, who are responsible for all this. Like the IMF. Yes, indeed. Well, what did you make well, of the statement and the response? Well known for its views of uh, spending billions and billions. You know, IMF, the, the joke in economics is it's the, the acronym stands for it's mostly fiscal. And that is because it always asks people to tighten their budgets rather than loosen them. And that is essentially what it told the UK government. But what was unusual about it, not what it said, not that it was concerned because that was inevitable, but that it did it unprompted in a statement that we now know went all the way up to the managing director level and they didn't tell the UK government first. That is highly, highly unusual. Really, they always tell the government, but they just didn't bother. 
And the Tom Scholar point that George made earlier comes in here because, of course, the Tom Scholar was one of the veterans, I think the last veteran, actually, of the financial crisis left at the Treasury. And he is the exact kind of person who could have called a director of the IMF or someone senior and said, look, don't say anything, don't do anything, give us 24 hours, what have you. But that vacuum created meant that, of course, they didn't have anyone to tell and just went out and said it. Yeah, we don't know whether the Treasury had any inkling it was coming or whether it came as a complete surprise, but it is the sort of thing that you would have thought the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, if we had one, would be on the phone to all international organisations saying, we will sort this out, don't make it worse for us, we'll sort it out, don't worry, we've got this in hand. And obviously there was no one to do that. Then we come to Wednesday, which was £65 billion injected by the Bank of England into the markets following their deep concerns about stability. Now, this came, Chris, from a very particular corner of the pensions market. Can you sort of unpack why the bank intervened, what they were concerned about, and where exactly the money was being targeted? So I'm not going to go into the gory details because they're pretty gory, but it was in the particularly in the very long-dated government bond market. So where the government is borrowing for over 30 years, because this is what pension funds use a lot, what happened was that particular part of the market was going even more bonkers than the whole market. And that was because pension funds, in the way they'd been investing, which was we now know was far too risky, and this is going to be a scandal for future, but just leave it at it was far too risky what they were doing. They were losing money hand over fist, and they were having to put up more collateral to the people they'd been borrowing money from to ensure they could pay it back. And the only way they could do that very quickly was to sell more government bonds, and so you got into a vicious circle. Selling government bonds, that made the problem worse, had to put more money up, sold more government bonds. And the Bank of England wanted to stop that doom loop or that vicious circle. So that's where that £65 billion is being spent. Really, it's there not necessarily to spend the money, but to be there as a market maker of last resort. It says, if no one else is going to buy this stuff, we will. But of course, it causes almighty amounts of stress because it means, again, the bank is now restarting quantitative easing, at least temporarily, just at the time when it was reversing it. Of course, a, a policy that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss have yeah. famously loved. Famously, Liz Truss, in her leadership campaign, said it, it had caused inflation and the bank should not have done it. And now, you know, 22 days into her premiership, it is doing it again to bail her out. It also makes it look like the bank is having to bail out the government for making a mess. And that is bad internationally because it looks as if the bank's independence is being compromised. And that's when people, you know, America, the former advisor to Barack Obama, said uh, this looks like fiscal dominance, which is the jargon for what I just said. And this tends to end up in hyperinflation in emerging markets. He went on to say it probably won't in the UK, but it's not good news. This is how bad things start. And of course, it makes a more pull-me-push-you problems within government economic policy because, again, fiscal policy, government tax and spend, is trying to pump things up. And the Bank of England's policy to try and get control of inflation is to try and dial things back. The more basic analogy that I used on the podcast last week is the person driving the car is hitting the accelerator and the brakes full pelt at the same time. And if you do that for long enough, well, you eventually break the car. Now, George, let's pull this back to politics. So on Thursday morning, obviously, again, we'd not heard from Liz Truss at all throughout this period. We'd had a brief statement at one point from Quasi Quartang, I think had gone to a factory in Darlington we heard earlier on. But for sort of slightly unfathomable reasons, Liz Truss decided that the reason to 
respond to this and following the bank's intervention was to do a series of BBC local interviews. Now, these always happen in the run-up to party conferences, but she'd not spoken to, you know, the Today programme or the news or done any clips or any newspaper news, all the usual things you would do in a crisis to try and calm the situation. And I think in many years and decades to come, this series of interviews will be taught in media studies classes on how to not respond to a crisis it's quite painful listening, but let's just listen to one exchange that happened on BBC Radio Stoke. It's also about how we grow the size of the pie so that everyone can benefit. By borrowing more and putting our mortgages up. We need to borrow more this winter for the energy crisis that we're facing. And I we're think that was the right thing mortgage. to do. We're going to, is... going to put, spend more in mortgage fees under what you've done based on the predictions than we would have saved with energy. I don't think anybody is arguing that we shouldn't have acted on energy. It's quite painful, George, the silences. And there were as a whole hour long of these interviews, which the BBC have helped put together into a podcast if anyone wants to listen <laughs> to an alternative for an hour. But uh, yeah, again, not exactly reassuring. No, it was excruciating. Whoever thought that was a good idea to put the Prime Minister into back-to-back -back local radio interviews, I don't know what they were thinking because they're notoriously difficult. I mean, I've seen some speculation or she was trying to sort of get an easy ride because she was going on local radio rather than going on the Today programme where she might have got more of a grilling. In my experience, the total opposite is the case. You've got the best journalists on the local radio station doing the interview. They won't just be asking you difficult questions like the ones you just heard about the economy more generally, but also on local issues that the Prime Minister is necessarily across. So, for example, on BBC Radio Lancashire, where she was asked about fracking, where again she came unstuck. But the overarching impression was someone who didn't have the answers to the questions. And you heard some of those silences were as cavernous as the Grand Canyon, weren't they? <laughs> it's just awful, awful to listen to. And the problem is that first impressions really count because, frankly, a lot of people still don't really know who Liz Truss is. She suddenly became Prime Minister. The Queen, unfortunately, died, and therefore we didn't see very much of her during that period either. So she's just being introduced to the British people. And the introduction is against a backdrop of crushing pounds, soaring interest rates, and a load of media interviews where she sounds like she doesn't really have an answer to any of the quite reasonable questions that are being put to her. The thing that's so confusing about all this, George, is, is just what is going on inside government here, because we've talked a lot about Trustworld and the people advising her, and it does feel as if they're not the most experienced people in government. They don't have legacy within Whitehall. And I think we actually, before she became PM, the worry was they would hit a major crisis and would not be able to deal with it. And it really feels as if both the teams in number 10 and in number 11 just don't have enough experience to deal with, the, you know, a crisis of this magnitude. Well, you and I have spoken to Tory MPs and ministers who've made exactly that point. There's a total lack of experience to deal with an international crisis like this. And of course, the team that this trust has in number 10 is almost completely changed from the one Boris Johnson has. They're all learning on the job very quickly. The Treasury, as Chris was mentioning, we don't have a permanent secretary. We don't even have a, a second permanent secretary. That job hasn't been filled either. The Treasury minister with the most experience of working in the Treasury was appointed by Boris Johnson on July the 8th. So you've got a Treasury ministerial team which has no more than two months of experience and the two senior officials have gone and you're embarking on a completely different and radical and as it turns out, risky economic strategy and you know, the lack of experience is, is obvious. 
Now, Chris, I know you won't want to open up your crystal ball too much because the situation is so volatile. But as we're recording this on Friday morning, there is a meeting between Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng and the head of the Office for Budget Responsibility, which again, in itself is highly unusual. What do you expect from that? And where do you think this whole thing goes next? I don't expect huge news to come from that. But there might be a bringing forward of the November the 23rd statement to something more urgent. That's the one thing I think they could do. I think they can come up with sort of words about how the government is going to show that it's going to have the public finances on a sustainable footing in its statement in the autumn whenever that comes and everyone agrees that and that they'll come up with new fiscal rules. I mean, it's very difficult because there isn't a forecast now. So they can't just say, but this is what the OBR thinks and it's all fine. It wouldn't be, by the way, but they can't do that. So they've got to have some time, but not a huge amount of time because the OBR is looking at the economy at all times. You know, it can do things quite quickly if it's being told, but it has to be told to come out with the forecast. It doesn't have the power to do that on its own unless you're getting close to that limit where it's got to do two per year. So at the moment, it can't just go and say, right, sod it, we'll go and we'll tell, we'll tell the world what we think anyway. And what about market reaction where that goes? Because in terms of the politics, I'll come on to with George, what's really forced the issue was the Bank of England's intervention on Wednesday. And it feels like the situation from the political perspective is in deadlock because Liz Truss, there's been some rumours abound that she might jettison quasi Kwarteng, but I think it's quite unlikely because they're still totally simpatico on the policy and the strategy. She's not going to immediately bin her chancellor. She's not going to change the strategy. So it just feels like it continues in the next big event will be something that comes from markets. It's difficult to know exactly what's going to happen. Markets have calmed down, but interest rates or government borrowing costs are still massively higher than they were a week ago. So that is the most important market. Sterling is about where it was a week ago. It's, it's recovered. To, but you know, anything could make the febrile atmosphere come back again. And we don't really have things in the diary until the 3rd of November when the Bank of England is bound to raise interest rates by quite a lot you know, there's going to be a big vacuum for quite a while. But thankfully, George, that vacuum is going to be filled by Tory party conference where Mm. you and I are off to in Birmingham on Sunday. Normally, this conference should have been introducing Liz Truss to the world, to the party, and allowing her to set forward her new agenda. And instead, the sort of mood inside Downing Street seems to sort of be everything is fine here. And Liz Truss wants to say as little as possible about that. And you've heard it through the series of interviews. But it's going to be a bit like a party conference unlike any other. All the moderate... Tories from the Rishi Sunak wing of the party, they're just staying at home and not going. And journalists like you and I are going to be chasing down every cabinet minister and MP saying, what do you make of this unfurling chaos? That's right. I imagine that most Conservative MPs won't go to Birmingham. They don't like party conferences very much at the best of times, and they'll certainly be steering clear of this one. I suppose the only relief for this trust is that Rishi Sunak won't be there. I mean, he's going to be at home in Yorkshire, apparently. And neither is Boris Johnson. You can imagine what it would be like on the fringe of the party conference if Boris Johnson made an appearance. So she's got that. But on the other hand, as you say, we will be looking for divisions. We'll be trying to find people criticising this trust and Kwasi Kwarteng. When Kwasi Kwarteng makes his speech on Monday afternoon, I imagine the broadcasters will have a chart showing the movement of the markets in response to everything he says from the podium. So it's going to be really difficult. And for Liz Truss, you know, this could have been, or should have been, her moment of coronation, instead of which... There's just going to be a huge amount of anxiety and nervousness. I mean, how on earth do you play a conference where you're, you're going into it with a whole deficit of 20 or even 30%? George and Chris, thank you very much. Yeah. 
The economic chaos dominated the other major political event this week, Labour's party conference in Liverpool. Sir Keir Starmer's second in-person gathering since he became leader of the opposition was rather different to the first. Unlike Brighton, the mood was calmer, the party was more in his hand, and there was a clear feeling that Labour believes it is finally ready and preparing to return to government. In his solid but steady keynote speech on Tuesday, Sir Keir Starmer used the turmoil of the Trust government to highlight how he would do things differently. What we've seen in the past few days has no precedent. The government has lost control of the British economy. And for what? They've crashed the pound. And for what? Higher interest rates, higher inflation, higher borrowing. And for what? Not for you, not for working people, for tax cuts for the richest 1% in our society. Don't forget, don't forgive. The only way to stop this is with a Labour government. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back. I dread to think how many Labour Party conferences you've been to over the years, but tell us about the mood and the atmospherics of this year's gathering in Liverpool and what did you make of it all? From a, a particularly FT perspective, there were an awful lot of business people there. I think it was the biggest business presence there since they lost power in 2010. A lot of eager people in suits and more senior those people in suits than usual, reflecting the fact that there does seem to be at least a credible chance of Labour winning the next general election. And a lot of happiness among Labour delegates. We were having dinner with an unnamed member of the Shadow Cabinet when that YouGov poll came through, putting Labour 17 points ahead of the Conservatives, and that is a 21-year record. And there was a lot of delight there. But that sense of optimism is very much tempered by bitter experience, which is that since 2010, we are now on our third leader, and each one has had a false dawn. So under Ed Miliband, there was a point where Labour was leading the Conservatives by something like 12 points, I I seem to remember. And there was a point under Jeremy Corbyn where, uh, of course, the 2017 election, which Theresa May launched to crush the saboteurs uh, and thought was going to be a walkover, and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour went on to win something like 30 net seats. And we all had to take Corbyn incredibly seriously at that point. And of course, he got totally uh, destroyed in 2019. But Labour has had these false dawns that end in electoral setback, and they haven't forgotten them. And Keir Starmer in his speech did say, this feels like it could be a historic moment, like great Labour victories like 97 and 45 in the past. But it's still a long way to go. And the Tories are going to attack us in every direction and can't take this for granted. Bear in mind, there are places, you know, Scotland, for example, they lost 40 seats, they still only have one. There are all sorts of cephalogical reasons why this isn't going to be a walkover for Labour. They have to gain something like 120 seats. But for now, they're feeling quite happy and they're watching from the sidelines as the Conservative Party appears to implode. Well, Jen Williams, it's great to have you back on the podcast as always. And we were together in Liverpool and throughout the many conversations you had over the last week, what was your sense of it? Because obviously Labour's strategy has got tighter. They've got a clearer message. And of course, that was massively helped by the events in London. Do you gain a sort of sense that they're on a glide path to power now? Is there too much confidence, perhaps? It felt to me as though they don't quite dare to hope that it's quite a kind of incremental increase in confidence, I suppose. It was calmer. And one of the reasons that it was a lot calmer was that you didn't have that level of friction and toxicity that we've seen during the Corbyn years 
and even on some occasions prior to that, there was much less in the way of people stood outside shouting. It looked more professional. As Jim says, there was more of a business presence. I wouldn't describe the mood as jubilant, though, because I think they are kind of slightly holding their breath. And I think they know that there is work to be done. I think what they are still probably missing is a sense of a a really clear narrative going into the next election. And I think they know that. I think there's an awareness at the top of the party that they need to be clearer and more disciplined around a political strategy, which kind of works symbiotically with their narrative. What is the story that they are trying to tell the electorate next time round? And I think they know that. I think that they are talking to Labour Together, which is like a kind of offshoot. It's one of these many bits of Labour that's people looking at possible policies, possible narratives. I think there's going to be a move to sort of strengthen that at the top of the party now. They're definitely not taking anything for granted, I would say. Now, Jim, the dominant thing was obviously the economy, and that's because of what was going on further south from Liverpool. And I think one thing that's worth listening to is Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, who I think gave the most compelling and plausible case for prosecution that we've heard from a Labour shadow chancellor against the Tories in probably quite some time. A return to trickle-down economics, an idea that has been tried, has been tested and has failed. Why should my constituents in Leeds West, why should people in Merseyside pay for tax cuts for those who are already the wealthiest. It's not what anyone voted for. It's putting our economy in danger and conference Labour will fight it every step of the way. Well, Rachel Reeves got, I think, two standing ovations for that speech, Jim, which you were in the hall for. What do you make of where she is and Keir Starmer is on the economy? And obviously, in some ways, it's a bit of an open goal, given the the market volatility that continued throughout Labour conference. Does it all hang together? Is it something that's still going to connect with voters? Or is it still a bit groupthinky, a bit think tanky, I should say? So what's really interesting when you unpick Labour's economic strategy at the moment is that they would do in power a lot of the things the Conservative government is doing, but they would do less of it and they would avoid some of the pitfall policies like abolishing the 45p rate. So if you take the energy package, it was of course Labour who first said we need to intervene to cap prices for everyone. And their policy in August was worth £29 billion over six months. The Conservatives have come along with a £60 billion policy because they've included businesses, whereas Labour didn't. And also they've promised that they would help households for two years. So amazingly, you have a Conservative package put together by these free marketeers, which is worth 150 billion, is five times bigger than Labour's. And yet the focus is on the ruling government and not on the opposition. Nobody's putting their hand up and saying, how come Labour, who are meant to be the party of the workers, is offering massively less support on energy. So they're lucky because no one's even really looking at this. And then on the tax cut stuff, saying, look at these idiot Tories with their massive package of tax cuts. This is profligate. And we, Rachel Rees and the, the Shadow Economic team, would not do any unfunded tax cuts. But they would keep the reversal of national insurance rise. They would keep the cutting of the income basic rate from 20p to 19p. And even though they wouldn't do the 45p cut, they're saying that they would channel that money to extra spending on the NHS. So that's about £20 billion of kind of unfunded tax cuts from Labour. The only difference is that they're saying, well, our energy windfall tax would actually end up being a lot bigger than the government's 
if and when we get around to explaining how it would work. But you know, their windfall tax at the moment is a pretty similar dimension to the government's. But again, luckily for them, commentators aren't as interested as a hypothetical situation where they're in charge. And they cannot believe their luck that this Conservative government is lifting the banker's bonus and cutting the 45p rate and also cutting corporation tax at the point where they're doing all this other stuff, which in aggregate is spooking the markets because Labour can point to the government and say, look at these people, they're cutting taxes for rich people and look, the markets are terrified and your mortgage is going to go up. From Liz Truss's point of view, it's a terrible confluence of events and for Labour, it's a massive opportunity. And Jen, how do you think this goes down in the wider country? Because obviously a lot of people will be looking at the government and whether they agree or not with the economic package, everyone will be concerned at the competence and the fact that that message of Keir Starmer, they seem to have lost control of the economy, has some basis to it. But it's obviously a very acute moment for many voters who will be looking at Labour with different priorities and prospects given the events the past couple of weeks and we'll see where the economic turbulence ends. Well, I mean, I think Rachel Reeves is very much presenting herself as the grown-up in the room, isn't she? You know, former Bank of England, not only a potential chancellor that the electorate can trust, but also a potential chancellor that the markets can trust. I think there were a couple of other things sprinkled into the speeches that are worth mentioning as the kind of potential building blocks of manifesto. So Bridget Phillipson talking about childcare, I think is very sensible. She talked about rolling out breakfast clubs as the beginning of rebuilding the childcare system. That makes a kind of economic sense as well as being appealing to people who are struggling and in desperate need of that and who perhaps want to work more hours but can't. Uh, And the fact that Labour have finally decided what their position is on rail nationalisation, it seemed to me a fairly obvious policy, to be honest, because it's popular with the public. It at least throws some kind of red meat towards the membership in terms of saying that we are in favour of nationalising something. And it's quite difficult for the Tories to attack anyway, because so much of the system is effectively nationalised right now anyway. Now, Jim, let's just move on from the economy for a moment, because we talked a lot about the vibes of this year's conference and probably the most standout moment about where Labour is heading happened in the opening hours when a tribute was paid to Queen Elizabeth II. feels impossible to imagine a Britain without her. Hardly any of us have ever known anything else. For us, the late Queen has always been simply the Queen, the only Queen. Above all else, our Queen. Well, obviously, Jim, that sort of tugs at the heartstrings and that's exactly what Labour Party would have wanted. And that's pretty imaginable under the Corbyn years. And I think Jeremy Corbyn gave an interview to the BBC where he thought it was unnecessary, I think was his words, to sing the national anthem. But obviously, Kistama is wanting to try and speak to those voters who feel very patriotic, have a very deep connection to the royal family. And one of the opposition leaders, senior aides I spoke to at the conference, said that that minute when they had a minute silence was the longest minute of her life as they were seeing if anyone would intervene or would speak out and they didn't and it showed that Labour is not embarrassed to talk about patriotism. Yep, so the way to think about this is that there are three strands, successive strands in Keir Starmer's thinking on how he would conduct Labour leadership and opposition. The first one, the detoxification of the Labour Party as he would call it after Jeremy Corbyn by which he means supporting NATO, shedding any remnants of anti-Semitism among the grassroots of the Labour Party, wrapping himself in flags. We've seen a lot of that, you know, gets ridiculed for it by some elements of the left. But it's a very deliberate strategy of focusing on blue-collar, 
socially right-wing, I suppose, whether or not they're economically left-wing, voters who deserted in droves over Brexit and over Corbyn a few years ago, back in 2019. And another element to that is also kind of ridding the leadership of the party of of pro-Corbyn figures, and he's done a lot of that. He now wants to turn outwards and basically put forward a great vision of how Labour would govern differently. And of course, as both you and Jen have mentioned earlier, that's the bit which still seems a little bit shaky. They can't decide on what their slogan is. And Labour's overly democratic processes lead to all, all these policies putting in slightly different directions. And a lot of people say Labour doesn't have enough policy. It has actually got quite a few policies, some of them quite big ones, which it's announced over the last couple of years. There hasn't really been a transmission mechanism by which the public knows about a lot of these policies. And some people, you know, we broke bread with a, a Labour veteran who, who describes Keir Starmer as, was it wooden and monochrome, I think? You know, there is that question mark over his personality and his charisma. But his supporters will say, and I suspect a lot of floating voters will say, that they've had enough of charismatic, somewhat chaotic leaders. And maybe now is the time for a bit of dry technocratic leadership of the sort that the Australian and German and American voters have gone for in the last couple of years. And finally, Jen, the phrase that came to mind for me, which I wrote about in the FT, was that Labour now feels plausible again, that over the past kind of six years or so of of Labour's trajectory, they've had to deal with the Jeremy Corbyn turbulence, the 2017 election, the 2019 election, the failure of Ed Miliband to win. And it now feels that partly given where the Tories are, but also where the party's got itself into a decent shape, you can see Keir Starmer in Downing Street, you can see Rachel Reeves as Chancellor, you can see Wes Streeting as health secretary. They've got themselves into a place where what they're saying and their priorities do seem to chime with where the British public is. I think plausible is the right word. That wasn't really a conference in which we had any gaffes or we had any really big rows. The standout gaffe was when Rupert Hook was suspended for comments that she made about Kwasi Kwarteng at a fringe meeting. And Keir Starmer dealt with that very, very quickly and she was slapped down and things moved on. Now, I don't think that would have been the case necessarily a year or two ago. That wasn't a story that suddenly dominated everything. You know, things moved on from that quite quickly. And I think that that is a sort of sign of a confidence, I guess, breeding confidence. But I also that think that then has an effect on the way that they are treated, if you see what I mean. It, it has an effect on the way that, that they're covered. And it just has this kind of sense of maybe it just starts to become a little bit more self-fulfilling. They really needed that plausibility. And clearly they now have further steps to take in order to be really assured that they're in a position to actually turn those sort of 17 point poll leads into a genuine majority. And finally, Jim, we've talked a lot about the atmospherics of this conference, but there was one big policy announcement which came in Sir Keir Starmer's speech, which was the creation of GB Energy, which is going to be a nationalised state-owned energy company to rival the likes of EDF in France. What does that policy tell us about where Labour is heading and what do you make of what they've proposed? It wouldn't just be doing renewable energy, of which there's no shortage of investment and progress at the moment. It would also be doing nuclear, whereas many of our listeners will be aware that the nuclear program has been stuttering at best over the last 10, 20 years. And, you know, you don't have to be left-wing or right-wing to make the very clear point that one of the biggest problems in the program, as it's been executed by governments in Britain over the last few years, is that they've tried to do it with the private sector. And we've had Hitachi was going to build a nuclear power station pulled out. Toshiba was going to build one pulled out. China's CGN was going to co-build some with EDF. We are pushing them out for geopolitical reasons, which only leads EDF. EDF is struggling with cost overruns and delays. 
at its Hinkley Point site in Somerset. If you could reverse the clock, it could have borrowed much more cheaply if it had done this 10 years ago. But either way, you do it with the government, you have a little bit more certainty. And given that nuclear is the only low carbon form of energy that provides base load and is not subject to intermittency, this idea seems like quite a good one. Well, Jim and Jen, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know how to find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. And until next week, thank you very much for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.